Good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and this morning we get to start our Advent series uh, looking at this long-expected Savior as we rehearse the story of Advent, the waiting for God to answer His promises, to answer the longings of our hearts. And so, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the uh, passage we just heard read in Colossians chapter 1. So, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open those back up to Colossians 1. And let's pray as we uh, look at God's Word together. Gracious Father, Lord, thank You that we have confidence in Jesus, that we do not wait in vain for you. Though it uh, doesn't always feel that way, though though sometimes we wait a long time, as we look back over your story, we see that you have answered your promises. And so as we look ahead uh, for you to act today, as we look ahead for your son's return, we wait with confidence, Lord. And so help us to see more clearly how All of this, everything in life, uh, is focused on your Son. Help us see see that this morning in Colossians. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us eyes to see you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, plan B. Plan B is what we call it when our expectations don't work out the way we thought, when our plans fall apart and we're forced to kind of regroup, uh, recalibrate, and try something again. For instance, you plan to uh, have a nice roast for lunch. You, you put everything in the crock pot before church, and you get home and you realize you didn't plug it in. Plan B, McDonald's. Uh, or you... Uh, you know, you spend all of this time getting the nice family pictures for the Christmas card that you've been working on for forever. You get the pictures back, and half the kids have their eyes closed. Plan B, everybody on the couch and take a selfie. And, and the thing about plan B is that it's rarely as good as plan A was going to be. Uh, I mean, you spend days shopping for matching sweaters or whatever for that professional photo shoot, and the selfie is just whatever everybody's got on right now, because we got to get this thing in the mail. Or, you know, <laughs> unless you're still into Happy Meals, I don't know anybody who's excited about McDonald's when you're anticipating a roast or something like that. So it's disappointing, but it's, it's more than just the disappointment. It's a subtle sense of failure, Right? Like, like we failed to plan, and now we're letting people down. Or it's a reminder that we're not really in control. Um, sometimes our plans fall apart simply beyond, because of circumstances beyond us. I mean, you plan to visit family over Christmas. You buy your tickets months in advance, and then the day of, a blizzard hits, and you can't go anywhere. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't control that. It's frustrating, but you're powerless. Or everybody gets there as planned, but what was supposed to be a joyful family gathering filled with, filled with laughter and games devolves into petty bickering, nursing old wounds, starting new fights. And so, we resign ourselves to settle for plan B at Christmas. 
And the thing about Christmas is that sometimes we're tempted to view Christmas itself as God's plan B. That sending Jesus was kind of a backup plan. As if when God spoke His good creation into being, He didn't foresee how badly people would mess it up. Or He didn't anticipate how utterly helpless they would be to fix it on their own, like there was some sort of design flaw or failure to execute. God forgot to plug the crockpot in on creation. And now, here we are, we've got to come up with a plan B to save all of these people who've messed things up. Guess we'll have to send Jesus. It's tempting to think that. But the testimony of Scripture is very different. Jesus was always the plan. Sending Jesus was always the plan. As, as Charles Wesley's great Christmas hymn, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, from which we get the, the title of this series, uh, as, as that uh, great Christmas hymn puts it, Jesus is our long-expected Savior, the one we are, have been waiting for. He's the Savior that God intended from before the foundation of the world. He's the Savior that we need because of the fall of humanity. He's the Savior God promised through His prophets, the Savior He sent to accomplish our salvation, and He's the Savior who's coming again to make all things new. So from the beginning to all the way to the very end of God's great story, it's always been about Jesus. Paul Tripp puts it like this. He says, this story's amazing plot wasn't written when Mary got pregnant or when prophets began foretelling it or even when God announced it after the disastrous rebellion of Adam and Eve. This story is so miraculous in every way that it could have only come out of the mind of God in eternity before the foundations of the earth were laid down by His mighty hand. Sending Jesus was not God's plan B. The glory of Christ in His redeeming work was always God's plan for creation. And so what we want to do through this Advent series is, is to retrace the storyline of Scripture from God's purpose and design in creation, which we're looking at this morning, uh, to the fall of humanity, to the promise of redemption and the fulfillment of that in Jesus, all the way to uh, Christ's return and the consummation of all things. We want to trace that storyline to see how at every single point it's always been about Jesus. He's the Savior God intended, the Savior we need, the Savior God promised and sent, and the Savior who's coming again. And when we see the centrality of that, when we see Christ at the center of all of it, how the whole course of, his, of, of history with all of its crazy twists and turns and, and disappointments and, and all of the, the things we're waiting on for, for God to change, how the whole thing has always been moving toward the glory of Christ in His redeeming work, that's when we're finally able to make sense of this broken world that we live in of the, the heartache and, and the frustration, the disappointment. That's when we're finally able to make sense of our own 
stories and all of the crazy twists and turns and disappointments in each of our own lives to see how the brokenness that we encounter in this world is not the result of some sort of cosmic design flaw. God didn't get it right the first time. Rather, to see how the, it is instead the canvas on which God is painting the story of Christ's glory and supremacy over everything. That's what He's doing. Because the whole thing is ultimately about Jesus, we can make sense of it finally when we see Jesus at the center. And because the whole thing is ultimately about Jesus, He is uniquely qualified to bring redemption and reconciliation and wholeness to this broken world that we live in and to the brokenness in our own lives. And so, so what does that look like? Where do we see that? I want to look at the passage of Scripture that we just read, uh, what's often called the Christ hymn in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And, and Colossians is kind of like Philippians in that it's one of those letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church in the decades following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And his aim in this particular letter is to hold up the glory and supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, that, that, that the church would be so convinced of it that that would shape the steadfastness of their faith and their maturity in Him. So, in the verses just before our passage, Paul prays for the church in Colossae, which he often does at the beginning of his letters, and he prays specifically that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, God's plan, in all spiritual wisdom and insight, so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Because they are a people who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's who these people are. So, so how was that deliverance possible? Where did that come from? In this poem, in verses 15 to 20, Paul demonstrates how Jesus is uniquely qualified to accomplish that deliverance and redemption because He's the centerpiece of God's plan for both creation and salvation, creation and new creation. He's not plan B. He's the Savior God intended. And Paul shows us that in, in two key ways in these verses. First, in verses 15 to 17, he shows us how creation is by Jesus and for Jesus. He is God's agent in creation, and His glory is God's goal in creation. So, so look at verse 15. Paul begins by describing Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so, you, you read those ver that verse, you he hear those words, and right away you have to stop and ask yourself, where have I heard that before? That imagery, the, the, those phrases. I mean, that's Genesis 1, right? Paul is, is pulling the language and imagery all the way from the very first chapter of the Bible. He's taking us clear back to creation, and, and to when God first made the heavens and the earth. 
And, and if we go back there, you don't have to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, Genesis 1, when we go back there and we see what God says about humanity in creation, He says this in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Sounds a lot like Colossians 1, right? And, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God makes humanity in His image. Unlike all of the other creatures you meet in Genesis chapter 1, each of which is made according to its own kind, that phrase is repeated over and over, humanity is made in the very image of God, which in the context of Genesis 1 means at least three things. First, it means relationship. Humanity was made to have relationship with God. If you keep reading in Genesis, you get to chapter 5 where it says, Adam had a son in his likeness after his image. Same language as chapter 1. So, image and likeness, that's language of parent-child relationship. God made humans to be His children, to have relationship with Him as a father to a child. Second, being made in God's image means reflection. So, relationship and then reflection. Just like a child kind of looks like their parents, so we are designed, we are meant and made to look like God. If I had a, a nickel for every time I'm told that my son looks just like me, I would have a lot of nickels. We, we have a, a resemblance, right? And that's, that's common to the parent-child thing, right? And, and so, in the same way, our job as humans is to show the world what God is like, to show His glory, His beauty, His worthiness. I mean, you can think of, if you, to change the metaphor a bit, if you think of one of those tall stand-up mirrors that, you know, you could kind of turn and, and, and rotate, if you put that tall mirror at a 45-degree angle and you look at the mirror, what are you going to see? You're going to see the ceiling, right? Well, humanity is designed to be an angled mirror so that when people, when, when you look at humanity, you ought to see a reflection of God above. That, that's, that's how we were made, to have relationship that reflects God's character, but then third, to be made in God's image also means representation. So, relationship, reflection, and representation, royal representation to be more precise. So, God, the King of the universe, has taken humanity, made in His image, and as Psalm 8 puts it, He crowned Him with glory and honor and gave Him dominion over all creation. That's, that's the content of God's blessing in Genesis 1.28. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth, and subdue it. We are to bring God's heavenly reign to bear on this earth. We are to be His royal representative so that every nook and cranny, every corner, every classroom, every cubicle 
Every living room is filled with the glory and worthy image of God. That's God's vision for creation. To establish His kingdom through a people made in His image, His children who reflect His character and represent His rule on earth. Now, that's Genesis 1. The question is, where did that vision come from and where is it going? Where did that come from and where is it going? So come back to Colossians chapter 1. According to Colossians 1, Jesus is the template, the agent, and the end of God's vision for creation. That's where it came from, and that's where it's going. So, so first, Jesus is the template. Look again at verse 15, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if you work in manufacturing or art or something like that, where, where part of your job or goal is to produce multiple objects that look and function similarly, uh, car parts or figurines or whatever, you start by creating a template, a mold or a pattern from which you then make everything else. Jesus is the template for God's creation of humanity. Notice that He's not made in the image of God like we are. He is the image of God, which is a, a subtle but huge distinction. He's the very blueprint for humanity and the very revelation of God Himself. So, so when Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, he is attesting to both Jesus' humanity and His divinity, that, that He's true human and true God at the same time. So on the one hand, He is truly human. He's the perfect human. He is the standard after which all of humanity was designed. And He's the only one who got it perfectly right in, in His incarnation when He walked on this earth. Jesus in His incarnation, is everything and did everything that Adam and Israel and you and me failed to be and to do. He's the perfect human. He never sinned. He never succumbed to temptation or rebellion. His was a perfect covenant obedience so that He could stand in our place as our representative, as, a, as the, the true human, the one in whom we can find life and forgiveness. He's the true Adam. He is the firstborn over creation, as Paul puts it. And, and that phrase can be tricky. Um, it, it does not mean, as Arius, uh, clear back in the fourth century, misunderstood that, that God is a created, God the Son is a created being. That's not what Paul's saying there. The miracle of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God condescended to creation. He took humanity into His divinity. He took on flesh and became part of His creation, but He is not a created being. The language of, of firstborn here, uh, as it's used here, is often used in the Old Testament as well to talk about preeminence or supremacy. It's a, it's a, it's a title of 
authority and greatness over something. In the same way that in Exodus 4, God describes Israel as his firstborn son, or in Psalm 89, David as his firstborn. So it's not talking about Jesus being created, but rather his authority over that which is created. Uh, but second, so, so Jesus is truly human. That's part of what Paul's saying here. But then second, he's also truly divine. He, he attests to his divinity, his godness. And we see that in several ways. Uh, again, whereas we're made in the image of God, Jesus is the image. He's the image of the invisible God. I mean, you just think about that language for a moment. Image of something invisible. How does that work? Jesus makes known to us the invisible God because He is God Himself. As the Gospel of John puts it, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So, so no one's seen God, but God, the Son, has made Him known. If you want to see God, if you want to know God and relate to God and enjoy God, you have to look at Jesus. That's the only avenue we've been given. Another way that we know Jesus is not merely human, uh, but also eternally divine, is the second role that He plays relative to God's creation. He's not just the template, He's also the agent. So, so look at verse 16. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created. Think about that. What He's saying there. Jesus was there with the Father in the beginning as the divine Word through whom He spoke everything into existence. Everything. And when He says all things, He means all things here. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, which is kind of a poetic way of saying everything, right? Because there's nothing that's not either visible or invisible. There's nothing that's not either in heaven or on earth. All of it was made by Jesus, including those forces that seem at times to be in opposition to God and His ways, what Paul calls here the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Christ made all of them, and therefore He is supreme over all of them. He's sovereign over them all. He's the agent of God in making creation. Uh, he's able to do that because He precedes everything in creation. Verse 17, He's before all things. Again, He's not a created being. He's eternal. He was there before creation existed. And He sustains all things. In Him, all things hold together. So, it's not as though Jesus, you know, help God kind of just help the Father wind up the watch and then set it aside, and, and then, you know, we'll let creation take care of itself from here on. From the very moment of creation to this very minute and for the rest of eternity, Jesus is the one who holds it all together, actively sustaining all of it. He's God's agent in creation then, now, and for eternity. But more than that, He's not just the template and the agent. More than that, He's also the end of God's creation. He's the very goal. Notice how Paul concludes verse 16. All things were created not just through Him, but for Him. 
for him. He's the end. The whole thing exists for his glory. The stars and the moon, the trees and the mountains, the oceans and the rivers, the cattle and the deer, the small towns and the big cities, all of it exists for the glory of Christ, which means you exist for the glory of Christ as well. We don't make sense of our lives by figuring out, all right, how does God fit into my story, to what I'm trying to do? We're not the author. We're the actors. We're not the artist. We're the paint. God is the author and the artist, and Jesus is the template, the agent, and the end of His creation. But the canvas on which he paints his story has much more contour than the pristine cloth of God's original creation. The canvas on which he's painting the story of Christ's glory is torn and rugged. It's stained by human sin and rebellion. As we're going to see next week when we look at the fall of humanity, uh, that our sin, that, that image, that relationship and reflection that, that we enjoyed in the beginning, that got messed up in a big way by human sin. The relationship was separated. The, the mirror was shattered so that the image of God in us is distorted as we tried to basically usurp God's kingdom and replace it with our own. And, and, and yet, so that's coming, right? But but even before that gets here, this too was accounted for in the plan. It's not a design flaw. And that's because the story of Christ's glory is not only a story of creation, but also of redemption. The cross was foreseen and planned. It's the fruit of an eternal covenant between the persons of the Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, this covenant of redemption made by the Trinity in eternity that already takes the fall of humanity into account. The glory of Christ in His redeeming work, not just His creating work, but His redeeming work was always God's plan for creation. And, and that's what Paul moves on to in the poem. He starts with the supremacy of Christ over creation, but then he moves on to his supremacy over redemption as well, over new creation. Just as Jesus, uh, just as uh, creation is by Jesus and for Jesus, so redemption is by Jesus and for Jesus as well. So, look, look at the, the shift in focus in verse 18. You go from this cosmic scale, all things in heaven, on earth, invisible, visible, from this cosmic scale, and then he zooms clear down into one particular thing, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Why does Paul zoom the camera in so tightly because out of the broken first creation, 
God is bringing forth a new creation, a new humanity with Christ as its head, as a display of His glory. Jesus is not only the template and the agent and the end of God's first creation, He's also the head of His new creation. And this new creation, this this renewing of what's broken in this world, Paul tells us that it was launched by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Just as, and, and you think about the parallels there, you know, just as God spoke the world into existence on the first day, so Jesus walks out of the grave on the first day of the week, which is why we gather on the Lord's day to launch God's new creation, redemption. And, and notice how Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. So again, that's language of, that's language of uh, preeminence and supremacy, right? But it also implies that there's more to come. He's the firstborn of the dead, the first fruits, but there's more to come, that, that, that the redemption Jesus is bringing to this earth is not only spiritual, it is spiritual, but it's not only spiritual because sin didn't just mess up the spiritual realm, it messed up everything. And so the hope of, of redemption in Christ is not only spiritual, it's also physical. In the same way that His body rose from the grave, we look forward to the day when He returns and our bodies will be raised as well. It was what we saw last week in Philippians 3, right? Uh, that, that we're waiting for a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly body to be like His body of glory. You know, sometimes we think of, of eternity in strictly spiritual terms, souls floating on a cloud with a harp or something like that. The biblical picture is so much more robust. Everything stained by sin will be undone. That's what Christ accomplishes. That's what He's bringing in His new creation. And the whole trajectory of all of that, Christ's work in creation and redemption, where this whole thing has been moving, is to show off Jesus' preeminence, His supremacy, His glory. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. So, so redemption is not just by Christ, it's also for Christ, for His glory. So, so it's not just the good that we receive in being redeemed, forgiven of our sins, having an eternal relationship with God, which is amazing and would be worth it by itself, but that's not even the main point. The main point is that in doing this, Jesus would get glory. We would see how incomparably beautiful and worthy He is because He's the only one who could do that. That's what Paul tells us. He's uniquely qualified to accomplish our salvation because, verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So again, Jesus 
In Jesus, God steps into his own creation. The fullness of God's glory dwelling in this man. The Son of God takes on human flesh what we celebrate at Christmas. And he did so so that through him God might reconcile to himself all things. And you think about that language, all things. That's a big that's a big promise, right? The whole realm of creation, things in heaven, things on earth, everything that's been stained by sin, all of these things we spend our times waiting for, longing for, looking for God to do something, everything that doesn't work in this world the way it ought to because of human sin, everything that bears the marks of human rebellion, God will bring reconciliation to it. He will bring redemption to it. Which does not mean that everyone will be saved no matter what they do with Jesus. Sometimes people will read this verse and think that. But if you keep reading the next three verses, verses 21 to 23, you see that the only way we can get in on that reconciling work is through faith in God's Son, through faith in Jesus, to turn from sin and believe in Him. But Paul's point, Paul's point here, there is nothing in this broken world, there is nothing in the brokenness of your own life that is beyond the touch and transformation of Jesus Christ. There's nothing he can't reach, everything spoiled by sin. He's reconciling it all to himself, restoring peace. And that's what reconciliation means. It's the restoring of peace. It's not just ending conflict. Real biblical peace and wholeness. It's the Old Testament vision of shalom, of, of God putting everything to rights, making it right again. Whether it's uh, taking something that's broken, whether, whether that's a soul or, or a relationship or the very fabric of creation, and making it whole once more. Again, everything stained by the fall. The image of God in humanity, this relationship that was broken, this mirror, this reflection that was shattered. Jesus is putting all of that back together. Even in Colossians 3, he talks about how we're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our Creator, once again to reflect His glory. And the price, the price of that reconciliation, the very means of restoring and redeeming all that sin has messed up, the price was the blood of Jesus' cross. Reconciliation is it's free to us, but it's not cheap. It's freely given, but it cost Jesus everything. On the cross, the full weight of God's wrath, His, His holy anger against all sin and wickedness and rebellion and injustice in this world, all of it was poured out on Christ in our place. He willingly took it in His love for us, in His love for His Father, in, in faithfulness to their plan from before the foundation of the world. He willingly 
took it, and in bearing the wrath we deserve for our sin, we can have peace with God. We can have peace with God. Paul explains in in verses 21 to 23, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's us. That's us apart from Jesus. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, the image renewed, the relationship restored. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There's only one hope we have for reconciliation and redemption, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done. We have peace with God through the blood of Christ, through faith in Him. It was the pleasure of God not only to create the world through His Son, but to redeem it through Him as well. He didn't redeem it through a program or through politics or war or through education or arts. Rather, He redeemed it through a person, through His eternal Son, and He did it for His Son's glory, that in everything He might be preeminent. Jesus was always the plan. He's the Savior God intended from before the foundation of the world. He's the Savior we need because of our sin. He's the Savior God promised through His prophets, the Savior He sent to accomplish our salvation, and He is the Savior who is coming again to make all things new. The glory of Christ in His redeeming work was always God's plan for creation. And so, as we wait, as we celebrate Advent and rehearse the story of this expectation of God to answer His people, to bring the deliverance they need, as we wait and rehearse that story and see Jesus in the center of it, do we recognize His centrality in everything? That that He's not God's plan B, as though the trouble and brokenness of this world were a design flaw or failure to execute, but that God is getting even greater glory through not just creating all things in and through Jesus, but redeeming them as well. And and if He's central for God, is He central for us? Is He the centerpiece of our own lives? I mean, so many times it's easy to kind of sit down and plan our lives or, or fill our calendar, and then if we've got anything left over, we'll give that to God. What would it look like to do it the other way around? for Jesus and His glory and His plan to be the centerpiece, and then everything else revolving around that? Is He central in our lives? And are we willing to trust His sufficiency for all of life, 
that he is uniquely qualified to accomplish and apply the salvation and redemption that we need. That, that we, God's not waiting for us to pitch in and add to the work of Christ, but rather to rest in and trust and apply the work of Christ. Are we still trying to fit Jesus into our story as though we're the author or the artist? Or are we willing to see and embrace the greater glory and significance both to the world and to our own lives when we understand Jesus is the center and we get to play part in His story for His glory? How much more lasting and meaningful and satisfying is that? Jesus is our long expected Savior. Do we expect Him to show up today? And as we're going, going to see this Advent season, He does not disappoint. He does not disappoint. So may we learn to live our lives centered on Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, what an incredible mystery. We confess, Lord, that even as our eyes see these words, our minds are incapable of, being, of wrapping themselves around everything that you're saying and declaring here. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the center, that your plans for creation, your plans for redemption are all moving to make much of Him. Lord, may we follow the trajectory of all creation and may our lives make much of Christ as well. May we grow in our vision and passion for Him this Advent. May we grow in our confidence, resting in Him. And may Jesus receive the glory due His name. It's in His name we pray. Amen.